Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. But we can imagine this series of questions, perhaps bullet point questions, that would be no bigger than a preview box in an email, and Washington's advice comes back expertly, precisely, concisely written with all golden nuggets of advice for how to survive and how to command. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Patrick Hannum and Fred Kinley discussing some much-needed advice from General George Washington. And they're our guests today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guests are Journal of the American Revolution contributors Fred Kinley and Patrick Hannum, and they're discussing a letter from General George Washington to his subordinates, in which he offered much-needed advice to the younger commander. We often think of Washington as a uh, kind of big-picture guy, right, a character uh, individual, but he gets beat up sometimes for his tactical errors, and he's often considered to be a less-than-impressive strategic mind. I think in this instance of this article and this interview, you'll see that that's not really the case. And Washington had a very clear understanding of the game he was playing on the battlefield against the British Army. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Patrick Hannum and Fred Kinley. Patrick Hannum and Fred Kinley, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having us. Our pleasure indeed. Patrick, tell us about your background. Uh, yes, I am a return guest, and I'm pleased to be back again. Um, I recently retired from the federal service after 45 years in the DOD. I spent 29 years on active duty as a, as a Marine Corps assault amphibian vehicle officer and uh, 16 years as a professor at the Joint Forces Staff College, National Defense University, where uh, I taught Phase II Joint Professional Military Education to uh, officers principally in the grades of 04 and 06 to 06. Uh, as directed by the Goldwater-Nichols Act of, of 1986. And uh, uh, Dr. Fred Kinley and I work together, so I'll, I'll turn it over to, to Fred. Fred? Yes, it's uh, my, my privilege to, to join you here this evening. Uh, like Pat said, I, I, we both have our background with the Department of Defense, uh, 45 years for me as well, having spent uh, the first 31 as a, uh, an infantry officer in the United States Army, eventually retiring as a colonel of infantry, and teaching at the Joint Forces Staff College, where I had the distinct privilege to do everything from uh, teaching in the classroom, my true love, to being the dean of the college for some time. Uh, we, Pat and I worked together to infuse American Revolution into the curriculum there because we believe in the currency, the relevance, and the importance of uh, understanding our, our nation's first war, our war for independence for, for today's current military officers. Uh, my background in education is uh, American studies major at St. John's back when that was a, a new major for a lot of folks, and then a uh, master's degree in education at Seton Hall 
a couple degrees with the Army, and then finally getting a doctorate at Regent University. So plenty of time to do research and, and study uh, with all that uh, opportunity that I had to spend the time in the classroom. What first drew your interest into this topic? I guess I'll, I'll kick that off. Um, I've, I've been a student of Virginia's first Revolutionary War campaign, um, which is the actions in 1775 and early 1776 to eject um, Lord Dunmore, the British governor, the royal governor of Virginia, uh, from his state, uh, from the, the colony of Virginia. And um, in, in researching that, I, I ran across this, this topic and just thought it was really relevant. And with Fred's background in leadership, I you know, asked him if he would join in on, on this, and we kind of collaborated on, on this article. So it's really, uh, from, from my perspective, it's, it's the study in the campaign, and this is just one of those little nuggets that, that, that I found. Fred, over to you. It was a real treat to collaborate with Pat on this. Pat's uh, expertise in the, in the history and the personality of the American Revolution, particularly the Virginia campaigns, uh, and then combined with my background in leadership studies with a, a doctorate in leadership, uh, I've been marveled over and over at George Washington's contemporary messages that we can take away from him. And the letter he sends to Woodford in this case is like a text out of a modern-day leadership manual. Uh, the, the ideas, the thoughts, the directives, the guidance that George Washington gives to Woodford in this case, all I could see was leadership ideas in that. So I was thrilled to be able to collaborate in something that is 250 years old, yet relevant to today's modern military officer. Who was William Woodford? Okay, now I'll, I'll kick that off. Um, you know, our interest in this letter in, in Woodford is his actions as the senior, we'll call it a task force commander of uh, a, a, a principally a Virginia unit, which is joined by some folks from North Carolina as well that really have the, the, the task of driving Lord Dunmore from Virginia. Now, this is all early in the Revolution in 1775. The campaign extends into early 1776. But Woodford himself was a, a resident of, of Caroline County, Virginia. Uh, he had some, some background in, 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 in military matters. Uh, he actually served during the French and Indian War. He was a lieutenant, uh, served under George Washington, in that war, uh, in, in uh, the Cherokee War of 1761, he also participated in that. At, at the time of, of his appointment to command the, the 2nd Virginia Regiment, which was his unit that he commanded, um, he was also serving as a delegate to the 3rd the the Virginia Convention. And, and as, as most people are probably not real familiar with the conventions, but they were really the, the legislature, the interim legislature, between the time um, Lord Dunmore was put on notice as the, the royal governor of Virginia and the, 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 the Whig government, the Patriot government, took over in the summer of 1776. They had a series of conventions. And it was the third Virginia convention that actually selected Woodford to, to lead the second Virginia and then ultimately the the task force, but he wasn't the first choice to lead the 2nd Virginia. Thomas Nelson, Jr. of, of Yorktown, uh, who would later become the governor of Virginia um, and participate in the Yorktown campaign, he was the man that was uh, uh, selected first to lead the 2nd the Virginia Regiment. Uh, 
But what happened was he opted to take the seat and represent Virginia at the Second Continental Congress. And that moved Woodford up on the selection list for the Virginia delegates, and he was appointed to, to command that, uh, that, that second regiment. Fred, did you have anything to add to that? Sure, sure. Wood, Woodford's very much akin to the military officers we encounter today in that he's looking for guidance, he's looking for counsel, he's experiencing a, a difficulty or at least some, some uncertainty with a new type of soldier for him and new types of campaigns, things looking different from what he'd experienced in the French and Indian War. And so he's, he's looking to get some mentorship. And, and in this case, we watch him turn toward George Washington for that. So Woodford is, is so much akin to the contemporary officer that's, that's looking for that, uh, that guidance, that, that senior mentor role, that it really made it special for us to take a look at this. What were the circumstances surrounding this letter? So again, I'll, I'll, I'll kick that off. Um, what, Virginia was in a very unique position at this point. You know, there's there's a movement to establish a a military force, but it's very incremental in the way it's done. They don't just wake up one day and say we're going to create a a military force to uh, counter the royal government. It starts with independent covenant companies, and, and those independent companies are really volunteer companies. And, and they actually moved to protect Williamsburg after Dunmore seized the powder from the magazine there at Williamsburg. That really created kind of a hornet's nest uh, of, of opposition to the, to the royal governor as the situation continued to deteriorate in all the colonies, but specifically in Virginia. And the, the convention realized that they needed a, more, a larger and a more disciplined force than what existed in these voluntary uh, militia companies, so uh, these independent companies. So they ordered the creation of a new force. This is really in August of 1775, and that's when Woodford is appointed, uh, receives his commission uh, as a state regiment. And the, the, were two, the two colonels were Patrick Henry, who obviously would become governor later of the 1st Regiment, and he was designated also as the commander-in-chief of Virginia forces, and Woodford as the 2nd Regiment. Now, what's interesting is they didn't, uh, the, the, the Committee of Safety, the Committee of Correspondence, and the convention that was, was acting uh, didn't really view Patrick Henry as the warfighter. They, they viewed Woodford as the warfighter. So when it came time to send forces south across the James River to actually confront the British forces that were there and the Loyalists that were supporting Dunmore, they, they selected Woodford. So at this point, Woodford had seen these relatively ineffective, um, somewhat undisciplined independent companies, and he believed that he needed a larger force and more conventional-type leadership to, to lead that force. And so he knew Washington had that experience. He trusted Washington's judgment. And so he sat down, obviously, one day and, and drafted a letter to Washington, and Washington responded back to it. Now, the letter that, that Woodford wrote is no longer in existence. We don't know exactly what he said in that letter. But we certainly know the questions he asked based on the answers that Washington gave. And Washington responded on 10 November. And we also know that there was a, a post system established by the, the committee and the convention 
to uh, run correspondence on a daily basis between uh, Williamsburg and Woodford's task force as he as he pushed across the James River and further south. And so um, we know we're, we're we're confident that Woodford received this letter during the campaign, and obviously based on his actions, you know, kind of adhered to what the guidance that, that Washington gave him in that letter. So that's a little background on what was going on. Fred, over to you. Uh, I, I, I almost fret that we don't have the original letter from Woodford, uh, because one of the things we teach our leaders often is that great commanders really don't have great answers, but great commanders ask great questions. And so based on the answers that we saw from George Washington in his letter, we could only surmise that Woodford's letter was really somewhat of a, a seeking of confirmation for what he thought he needed to do with this new force and this, this new type of, of conflict that uh, he was going to find himself embroiled in. So uh, just, just trying to, to piece together what Woodford's letter might have been was, was generally incredible for us in that uh, the answers George Washington got become a, a true lesson in small unit leadership. What did Washington have to say regarding personnel management? Well, again, I'll, I'll, I'll kick that off. Um, you know, this is creating a large force, not just these company size units, but now we're creating regimental size units with, you know, up to, you know, traditional regiment would have had 10 companies. The, the units they created were a little bit smaller than that. Uh, the, the, the 2nd Virginia Regiment was, was a seven-company regiment, but what Woodford crossed the, the James River with was 11 companies because five additional companies came from the Culpeper Minute Battalion and the famous uh, Culpeper Minutemen. Uh, so he, he had 11 companies. But that required you know keeping good records. And one of the things that kind of jumped out at us was there was a secretary appointed for the 1st Virginia Regiment, but not for the 2nd Virginia Regiment. And, and Woodford kind of pointed that out to the, the, the committee, and they actually assigned a man by the name of Thomas Merriweather to be the secretary. And many of the documents that we have in the letters, many of those things are in Merriweather's hand. So he was, you know, a penman for, uh, for, for Woodford. So that, that's, a, that's a personnel matter, and, and the good, good record-keeping has really been beneficial to us in, in this study of this campaign. Uh, some of the other things that really pop out, good order and military discipline with the personnel. Um, I think Fred may want to comment on this, but, but discipline is the soul of the Army, I think. Fred, do you want to comment on that, where that came from? Yeah, that, that is, is a true Washington quote, which what I, I found so amazing was when we compared Washington's guidance to modern Army doctrine, uh, Army leadership doctrine, specifically the uh, ADP, Army Doctrinal Publication, we found the Washington quote actually in print in the contemporary Army doctrine. And, and so we know Washington's his ethics, if we would, his personal values, his his personal conduct rules that are so so famous across the board uh, come about in his opposition to things like vice or gambling, his uh, his comments on on public drunkenness of soldiers. He knew what discipline took, 
and how he was going to have to build this new army and wanted to point that out to Woodford as well. His, uh, his emphasis on, on the behavior of the individual, on the, the morality of the individual, is something that we still see in, in doctrine and it comes forth in spades in Washington's letter to Woodford. Fred, if I could add to that as well, that whole idea of good order and discipline and, and avoiding vice and, and drunkenness on, on the part of the troops, you know, that, that becomes an issue in the campaign. And um, it's very challenging for, for Woodford to deal with those issues. And so I, I think that's, that's, that's Washington's whole man concept that, you know, you've got to be disciplined. And, and one of the things that struck me on it, on this was that, you know, there are records of the officers being court-martialed. And the one in particular that, that got my attention was Lieutenant Francis Boykins, who was a, a lieutenant in uh, William Davies' um, company of the 1st Virginia Regiment that reinforced Woodford uh, during the campaign. And Boykins was given the task to secure the bridge at the mill um, in, uh, in Bachelor's Mill along Deep Creek, which is oh, within about 10 miles of Great Bridge. Well, apparently during that campaign, uh, the, the loyalists, the provincials, had destroyed that particular bridge because it was necessary to get the wagons around to Great Bridge and then eventually up to Norfolk. And uh, he placed Francis Boykin's platoon at that, at that key location to secure that bridge. Boykins left. He abandoned it and, uh, because they didn't have any food, which, which kind of leads you to the understanding that there were some logistics challenges sustaining this force. But uh, Woodford had him court-martialed, and uh, the court-martial found him not guilty because of the fact that they, they didn't have any food there for, for the troops. And uh, Woodford was very livid about that. But there's also other examples of, of officers being disciplined, some of whom you know, would later die in combat. And so he didn't write these officers off you know, because they made an error and, and they court-martialed them or called them for their behavior. But it does highlight the fact that even today, officers' behavior has to be almost impeccable with their troops. You know, when, when officers are, are evaluated, they have to be role models for their soldiers. They have to be over and above. This is something we still practice today, and you see that in spades in, this, uh, uh, in, in these examples here. Fred, any comment on that? No, I, I mean, we were well prior to von Steuben's impact on, on the American army. And, and so Washington already knows what it's going to need to look like. And Washington understands that the American soldier is quite different from the European soldier. The in, installation of discipline has got to be handled in somewhat of a different manner. And so he's, he's coaching, if you would, he's coaching Woodford about the modeling of behavior. And, and that a officer leads by example, or as today, uh, the Army's own infantry motto is, follow me. And, and so George Washington is already instilling that in an Army that's about to be built much before we'll see that come about at, uh, at, at the Valley Forge encampment. Talk about some of Washington's tactical advice. He doesn't get a lot of credit for being a first-rate military uh, strategist. Well, well again... Um 
Washington speaks to a number of publications that he actually holds in his personal library. Um, you know, today we would call that the study of professional military education, exactly what Fred and I did, you know, in the latter portions of our career. Um, you know, we have a lot of doctrinal guidance that military officers study in the course of their education, NCO study. Uh, this is all embedded in our school system. There really wasn't anything like that for a continental officer at the time. And they had to, you know, go out and seek the, the publications that, that were out there and then acquire those and read and study from those. And that's basically what, uh, what Woodford was guided to by Washington. He told him where to go and look. And then some of the things that, that he really told him were, you know, things that what Fred and I have studied over the last 20 years of our lives in professional military education, you know, working with other partner nations. Uh, and we could probably discuss any of those experiences uh, that we've had, you know, working with partner nations, trying to share those same, not that same knowledge that we've acquired and passed on to other U.S. officers as well as other partner nations. Fred, any any comment on that? Yeah, it, the the rules are, are fairly simple in many cases that uh, George Washington postures toward Woodford. If only we had captured these years ago, I, I seem to believe that we'd have Washington's rules perhaps instead of Rogers' rules, which every current-day Army Ranger carries around in his handbook. Simple rules like don't never take the same route twice or, or to post your flank security at all times. These are the things that, uh, that, that I'm, I'm sure George Washington uh, has in all of his letters as, as we dig in, we research, we find this guidance he gives to Woodford. It's not that different from Rogers' rules, which have lasted over the years and, and which, uh, as I say, every, every Army Ranger has those in his pocket. I can guarantee that. You, you have already mentioned security before. What was Washington's guidance on security? Well, you know, he, he, the basics, basically what Fred just alluded to, you know, always be alert for enemy activity. Always provide good front, flank, and rear security. You know, 360-degree security for your force. Whether or not you expect an enemy attack or not, you know, you should always be ready. Works built at Great Bridge are another good example. You know, for, for somebody who's involved in ground combat, a, li a little bit of earth between you and the enemy is, is a great thing. And uh, Woodford had some fairly significant earthworks built at Great Bridge. And those proved very effective on the morning of the December 9th when the British grenadiers and light infantrymen marched directly towards the front of his position. Uh, they didn't breach the position. Uh, about 50% of the attacking force in that initial wave of British regulars was killed or wounded. Uh, an un unbelievable percent of casualties. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because they, you know, they, they followed those rules. Secure lines of communications, you know, the importance of logistics and supply. You know, many of the things that the European armies did in terms of supply had to be very carefully adjusted in North America because, you know, there was no sustainment when you, when you moved 
deeper into the, the continent or along certain routes. You, know, you couldn't get supplies like you could in the more built-up areas where there were more farms and cities in Europe. Uh, you, you couldn't get that in North America. So uh, all those things were, were, were considerations for, for, uh, for security. Fred, anything? In, in many ways, Washington's use of security goes along hand-in-hand hand with his advice to not assume unnecessary risk, not to uh, undertake offensive actions unless you were pretty certain of the outcome. And we see this early in this advice from George Washington, but it's going to become something that will guide George Washington through much of the war. Unnecessary risk could put the entire American effort at hazard if he were to assume that. Washington, we see, is a very prudent risk taker in most cases, and he's conveying that same information through his letter to Woodford. So what we see is, is what becomes Washington's modus operandi as he moves on through the war for independence, we see it already being set in this letter as he gives guidance to, to one of his subordinates very early on. How did Woodford apply Washington's advice? Well, there, there, are, there are numerous examples of these things. We've discussed some of those you know, in, in the course of this discussion already. But um, I, I think you know, when you look at one in particular, that occurs... After the Battle of Great Bridge, as the forces are closing on, on Norfolk. Now, Norfolk is important because it's the largest port city, coastal port city, between New York and Charleston. It's the eighth largest city in North America at the time, with over 6,000 residents of Norfolk. Um, and so it's a, it's a substantial uh, Base, it's, a base, it's a base of operations for the British if they keep it. So this is why they're, they're targeting Norfolk. Now, in the midst of this campaign, the North Carolina delegation sends the 2nd North Carolina Regiment north to join this campaign because they wanted to protect the northern flank of, of, of North Carolina and understood that should... Virginia, southeastern Virginia fall, and the British retain Norfolk, then they would have an avenue of approach into the Arbor region of North Carolina. So the North Carolinians sent Colonel Robert Hopps. Now, what, what's interesting from, a, you know, applying Washington's advice is that, that Howe had already been uh, brought into continental service, and the North Carolina regiment were already continentals. The Virginians were state troops. So because Howe was continental with a continental commission, he outranked Woodford, even though they were both colonels. And Woodford very graciously allowed Howe to assume command of this combined North Carolina-Virginia task force. It had clearly more Virginians in it than it did North Carolinians. So... Uh, that's the humility that Washington kind of implied in the letter, you know, to, to, to Woodford is, you know, you, you don't ask people to do things you wouldn't do and, you know, make sure you keep your wits about you. And so uh, this is something that, that, that Woodford did, and, and I think it's pretty amazing, a good lesson in humility. Um, things that we talk about today, you know, Unity of command, unity of effort, 
You know, you can be in command, but you have to have the effort put forward. Fred, where do you want to take it from there? I think a lot of what what we've seen the application of the advice from Washington too is it just it just spells it out and, and when you look at the the entire conduct of the the battle at Great Bridge how it unfolds you know today there's a there's a great museum there I haven't been there that long down in, in Great Bridge Virginia uh, but it's really worth the visit to to see this this battle that unfolds and and what this small group of patriots is able to do early on in the war and it, it, it it's evident that that. Woodford applies the advice he got from George Washington just because he's he's tactically solid. He's making good decisions, and uh, and he's acting as, as we expect an American officer to act, as Pat said. So it's uh, he got schooled. Uh, he asked for it. He got schooled and and took the lessons to heart. There, it, it, it's it's almost overtly obvious when we look at that one battle how it unfolds. What eventually happens to Woodford? Well, you know, Woodford initially, you know, after this campaign, continues in in command of the 2nd Virginia Regiment and and joins Washington's Continental Army uh, up in New Jersey in in 76. He's promoted to Brigadier General in February of 1777, and then as the campaign of 1777 unfolds, He's actually, you know, wounded at, at Brandywine on the 1st September 11th for the United States, September 11th, 1777. Um, he would then go on to command a, a brigade at, at Monmouth in 1778 and is sent to Charleston to defend the city of Charleston from British attack in 1779. He's captured down there in May of 1780 and he's held as a captive on one of the prison ships in New York, and he dies there in, in November of 1780. Uh, he's reportedly interred in Trinity Churchyard in New York City there in Manhattan. However, one of our colleagues has actually gone up there and tried to locate um, you know, a record, of something substantive on, on Woodford being buried there, and it's come up empty-handed. But what we can tell you is that Woodford County, Kentucky, and Woodford County, Illinois, are both named in William Woodford's honor. And uh, if you're a a bourbon whiskey drinker, uh, Woodford Reserve, that's brewed there in Kentucky, uh, carries his name as well. So a lot of people are commemorating William Woodford and probably don't even know it. It's here, here. Every time I'm sharing some come find Woodford with a friend. I, I can't not bring up uh, Captain Woodford and what he gave our nation. So it's a, it's a chance for a lesson in patriotism every time somebody cracks a bottle of Woodford. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, I, I think it, it helps us understand that the influences that, that George Washington had on his subordinates, his ability to develop senior leaders without having them sitting next to him but being able to guide and, and mentor them, and that's really Fred's specialty is, is mentoring in, in, in the leadership areas. Um, he's studied that extensively. And this is early in the war. And so if we assume that Washington continues to do this, you know, this is what builds the officer corps and the strength of the officer corps in the Continental Army, allows them to defeat the British. And these are enduring concepts, as Fred's pointed out, 
So this letter allows us to peer into the mind of a couple senior military leaders and relate their views to our contemporary thinking. You know, why do we study military history? It's critical in developing leaders for the future. And, and I think that's probably the biggest lesson that I took away from it. Fred? Oh, the, the, the relevance of, of the guidance and, and its application is just a hallmark for today's military officer. I, 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 I can sort of draw a parallel between this exchange of letters and perhaps today what we would see in an exchange of emails. Uh, we don't have Woodford's letter again, so sorry that we don't. But we can imagine this series of questions, perhaps bullet point questions, that would be no bigger than a preview box in an email. And Washington's advice comes back expertly, precisely, concisely written with all golden nuggets of advice for how to survive and how to command on the battlefield of the day. I, I think the biggest thing that, that I take away in terms of how this helps us understand the revolutionary era is the word relevance. We can still take a 250-year-old battle or a 250-year-old exchange of letters and apply that on a battlefield that's as current and contemporary as any, that our modern-day leaders still have a lot to learn from George Washington. Uh, as a, a, a great general officer once told us at the college, if you want a, a new idea, read an old book. And I think in this case, if you need a good lesson, look at the past. And, and this, is a, this is a perfect example of that. Gentlemen, thanks again. Thank you for having us. We appreciate it very much. Brady, thanks. Thanks for putting this together. And uh, uh, hoping folks get a chance to take a look at that and we can get more research going in this area. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.